We're in the writings of the prophet Isaiah. I'll remind you that Isaiah is referred to many by as the Prince of Prophets. It's probably the longest um, book, or at least one of the longest books in the Old Testament. And it covers a period of years, uh, something better than 50 years. Isaiah is believed to be, uh, of, to have a natural relationship with the family of Uzziah, uh, a cousin or something. So uh, it's quite logical that Isaiah would be considered a part of the royal family, and that gave him lots of access to the kings. Um, and he prophesied under uh, King um, uh, King Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and um, Hezekiah. Hezekiah, yes. Thanks, Alice. His book is divided into two primary sections. All the chapters 1 through 39 being dealing with Judah. And remember, Isaiah was primarily a prophet to Judah and Benjamin and not to the northern kingdom. Remember the northern kingdom shortly after the time of Solomon um, rebelled against the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom had their whole set of kings. And the northern kingdom was brought into captivity by Assyria in about seven 22 BC, whereas the southern kingdom was not finally brought to captivity until 600 BC. And so it, uh, the judgment of God upon the um, unfaithfulness and idolatry of the northern and southern kingdom uh, it just took longer for the southern kingdom because that's one of the reasons uh, i'm sure is because that's where the location of jerusalem is um, but nevertheless the whole house of israel eventually came into captivity and uh, from the time of Nebuchadnezzar's activity or, or uh, captivity of Judah, um, there was um, destruction. There was simply uh, barren land uh, 
in Israel until God uh, ministered to the hearts of various kings uh, who were over Israel and allowed them 70 years later to come back. And that's when we have the, the books of Ezra and Nehemiah and Haggai and Daniel and Ezekiel. And so every one of those prophets that I mentioned are called post-exilic prophets. But Isaiah is a pre-exilic prophet and his writings in the first 39 chapters uh, talk about both blessings and cursings against Israel. There is a section on the cursing of the uh, nations, the judgment of the nations that uh, God used to punish or chastise um, his own people. But remember the truth that you find in First uh, Peter that judgment must first begin at the house of God. So we're going to spend most of our time today in Isaiah chapter 6. And uh, we'll see what else God has for us. Let's pray together. Father, in doing a survey of such an important body of prophecy. Um, it is difficult as to which parts ought to be highlighted. Um, and so, Lord, we pray that you will guide us so that when we're done, that we will have some feel for the overview of what God spoke to Israel and particularly to Judah and Benjamin uh, regarding his watch care over them and his chastisement. We thank you for this book, for in it are some of the most precious revelations uh, which we will refer to revelations um, that were to be fulfilled uh, 700 years after Isaiah regarding the in some detail the coming of the Messiah mm. um, and so uh, even from that standpoint, we find uh, 
definite and inescapable prophecies that once Christ came, we saw clearly that he had been discussed and his ministry and his, uh, the, the uh, events surrounding his coming uh, would be delineated in such a way that we know not only that Isaiah um, was a legitimate prophet, but that um, God indeed is the author of all that is in this book and all the others. Let us remember, Lord, today that the spirit of prophecy mm-hmm. is the testimony of Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And so, Lord, bless this word to us this day that we might understand mm-hmm. the paramount importance of each of us individually having our own personal appreciation, understanding, and inner vision of the glory and majesty and holiness of the God whom we claim to worship. Bless this truth to us now, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, so I think I'll just have Alice. Um, I got um, I got Mark here with me, <laughs> and one of his favorite songs, this song that Mark wrote, and I just think that Mark ought to send this somewhere and have it published because mm-hmm. it is so filled with truth and it's beautiful and so let us worship the Lord together as Mark brings these truths uh, in song to us Thank you. 
interesting to me that Isaiah began his prophesying, of course, in the beginning of the book. However, it's not until we get to chapter six that we have this uh, marvelous vision that the Lord uh, presented uh, to Isaiah and even a prophet we see who was obviously called of God he was his his whole understanding of his relationship with God before Isaiah chapter 6. Uh, and as it uh, was so affected by what he saw in chapter 6, that he would never be the same. 
Um, and of course, we might have a tendency to simply gather doctrinal truth to attend religious functions, to read our Bibles, to pray to God. But I think we see in Isaiah chapter six, probably the foremost prerequisite for effective, for the effective working of the Holy Ghost in our lives. And that is that without the glory, without an appreciation of the glory of God and his majesty and his power and his holiness. And without uh, a, an, a lasting and um, irrevocable understanding of who we have come into relationship with, then all other things will grow to be just dead rhetoric and without life. <laughs> that is, before we can know about the details of our relationship with God, he must reveal to us and we must be able and desirous of receiving that revelation that we might have ears to hear and eyes to see, first of all, who is this personage that we have entered into relationship with? And what is it that he has wrought towards us, whereby in Second Peter 1, we find that this almighty, powerful, holy God has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness, even to the point that we may be partakers of his divine person. How can we be partakers 
if we do not by the spirit carry in our hearts the magnitude and the brightness and the awesome all uh, encompassing person of almighty God. And so it is for Isaiah to be lifted up well beyond the position of simply one who would mouth the prophecies of God. But that behind all that he had to say was that deep inner knowledge of the person that he spoke of. It is the person Consider, my friends, today in Christendom, do we find first and foremost in every ministry, in every local assembly, that the holiness and grandeur of God is continually preached before all the benefits of knowing him can be delineated and comprehended. I tell you that what we find in Isaiah 6 and other places that I'm going to mention are a necessary and vital requirement for any of us to perceive and then become transformed according to the grace of God working his salvation through us. So I'm going to start reading in Isaiah chapter 6, verse 1. And we'll read the whole chapter. It's only 13 verses. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw also the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and his train filled the temple. Above it stood the seraphims. Each one had six wings. With twain he covered his face, and with twain he covered his feet, and with twain he did fly. And one cried unto another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts, 
the whole earth is full of his glory. And the posts of the door moved at the voice of him that cried, and the house was filled with smoke. Then said I, this is Isaiah speaking, woe is me, for I am undone, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For mine eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then flew one of the seraphims unto me, having a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with the tongs from off the altar. And he laid it upon my mouth and said, Lo, this has touched thy lips, and thine iniquity is taken away, and thy sin is purged. Also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then said I, here am I, send me. And he said, go and tell this people, hear ye indeed, but understand not, and see ye indeed, but perceive not. Make the heart of this people fat, and make their ears heavy, and shut their eyes, lest they see with their eyes, and hear with their hearts, and understand with their heart, and convert, and be healed. Then said I, Lord, how long? Until the cities be wasted, this is the Lord's answer. Until the cities be wasted without inhabitant, and the houses without man, and the land be utterly desolate. And the Lord have removed men far away, and there shall be a great forsaking in the midst of the land but yet in it shall be a tenth, and it shall return and shall be eaten as a teal tree and as an oak whose substance is in them when they cast their leaves, so the holy seed shall be the sustenance thereof. You know, may God bless that word to us. Several things that I think the Lord would want us to see. 
there are many descriptions and various judgments of God towards the nation of Israel. And as I've always told you, that we are to understand the ways of God. And we know that we live in the last days, which has been now occurring for nearly 2,000 years. And the world has waxed worse and worse. And at least uh, as we consider that which must occur in the coming time of, of great tribulation, that truly the earth is nearing that finality whereby the whole head is sick and the whole body is lame. But understand that what the Lord has to say about the judgment of Israel is not words to the nations. It is not profitable for each of us to sit around and remark, even though we see it, but uh, to be uh, focused on the world. For the world is passing away. And everything that if we could look out our window as I can right now, and I see many of the works of God's hands. We have little squirrels that climb up and down the trees. And Alice and I, every morning, uh, there's one particular squirrel that comes up on our rear deck and stays for an hour. And we watch his behavior. And of course, I believe that God has put in each of his creatures that are not uh, responsible. They're innocent. They are not responsible for, uh, for maintaining uh, are demonstrating the righteousness of God, but they do show the wisdom of God. And they show uh, the perfection of God and how he has ordered the universe. But it is not that world outside that is causing the judgment of God. The judgment of God will first begin with his people as it is here in the book of Isaiah. And when we consider those men 
throughout the ages who have been used of God to bring revelation and to bring the word of salvation and to work mighty works by the power of the Lord before God's chosen people. Um, we see among them a commonality. And that commonality is that those men came to see God as he is. And what we have here in Isaiah 6 is simply the grace of God allowing Isaiah to see a vision of God's glory and holiness. We see the seraphims, and we won't get into the discussion of the these angelic beings. The word means burners that fly. And we like to go to Ezekiel and contrast the seraphim with the cherubim that are mentioned throughout the scripture um, more prominently. The word seraphim is never mentioned again in the Bible. The only place you will find it is here in Isaiah 6. But let us consider men that had responsibility under the blessings of God. That which God requires of his people is commensurate upon the great blessing whereby he has blessed them. There were privileges to God's people throughout the ages. The, the privileges, for example, of Israel in their land and their prosperity and the promises of their freedom from aggression, uh, those are promises that God had given them. More than that, he had set up a system of worship through the Levitical priesthood, whereby they could respond by faith to that which God had told them he required. And to whom much is given, then much is required. And let's just start with Adam. Now, Adam walked with God. Can you imagine the Garden of Eden? And Adam walking with God. I have to imagine that God demonstrated, as he did here in Isaiah, in ways that he hasn't told us, 
he demonstrated his glory to the first man. I mean, the first man walked with God. Sounds like Enoch, you know? He walked with God, and he was not, because God took him. And, and um, the great differentiation between those whom God has lifted up for us in the scripture and whom God has actually brought low in the scripture, the faithful and the unfaithful, we will find that in every case, men have pleased God based upon their appreciation not simply for what he has given them, but based upon their appreciation for who he is, who he is. What did Paul say was his greatest pursuit? It wasn't what he had uh, experienced when he was brought up into the third heaven in the end of the book of 2 Corinthians, I believe it's chapter 13. But he wanted to know God. I will say to you that all that we become, all the working of the Holy Ghost to bear the fruit of the life of God in our life, will always have primarily behind God's working is the fact that we have had a vision and understanding, not necessarily in the way that Ezekiel did, but an inward and a heart understanding of the glory of God. And that understanding was so powerful that in every day of our lives, we cannot escape but consider the wonder and the glory of the one whom we have a relationship with. And so Adam, he had that relationship, but we know that he was overcome by temptation and all of mankind fell. We find Moses as he is leading the people out of Egypt and he's in the wilderness and the people are stiff-necked and rebellious. What do we find Moses saying to God? He said, I will not go up from this place and lead this people unless you first show me your glory. It was necessary for Moses 
to have that that inner uh, anchor, that inner mooring to the being of God and the the understanding of his holiness and his majesty that he knew had to be at the very basis of his fulfilling the call of God. Now, each of us as Christians, Mm -hmm. as believers, we are called to walk in his ways. We are called to trust in the work of the cross and to look and rely upon the working of the Holy Ghost, whereby we might be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And we may develop that into a religion where we go through the motions on some regular basis. And I tell you that if we do that, we will end up being involved in a dead and vain, unreal relationship with God. That is a relationship that does not truly exist. For who was it that said, Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. I never knew you. It is the knowing of God. It is the beautiful and marvelous vision of God that gives us uh, the impetus to move into every other blessing that he has. For it starts with the person. It starts with the understanding of the person. And so Moses said, I won't go up and I won't fulfill what you've called me to do, except first, I must see you in your glory. And we know about God hiding Moses in the cleft of the rock and passing by. And he gave Moses every ounce of the vision of the glory of God that he could stand. And Moses went up after that. And he did marvelous work. Then, and here we find Isaiah being blessed with the same thing. Now, we might become enamored, or we might become focused on this vision that God gave to Isaiah in involving the uh, miraculous appearing of these angelic beings referred to as seraphim. But I think it would be easy to go right to them and talk about what 
Isaiah saw, and what he saw was that the seraphim existed and were absolutely at, uh, in, in the height of their satisfaction as to their job before God was for eternity to claim the holiness, holy, 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 Father, Son, Holy Spirit, the Trinity, to proclaim. Now, you know, after 10,000 years of doing that, you might think that they would become bored <laughs> with their calling. No, they were in perfect uh, joy, and they had in their minds the most wonderful duty that they, they could never consider doing anything else but proclaiming the holiness of God. Why? because God built that into them. That was the purpose of their being. And in the same way, we as human beings who are now elevated into heavenly creatures, elevated into being sons of God, and looking as all men are looking for satisfaction in life and joy, we will find it only in one place. We will find it as we come to discover our entire purpose, whereby God has made us to do that which gives him glory. Whereby we do not consider our own lives. We do not consider that which tickles uh, the fancies of our imagination, but we find joy after having come to know him the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his suffering, and being made conformable unto his death. And without that, we will be but tinkling symbols and uh, just uh, ornaments around a dead religion. But the first thing and most important thing, not the seraphim that Isaiah saw, is in verse 1, he says, I saw the Lord. Mm -hmm. He saw a person, and he was sitting on a throne, high and lifted up and his train filled the temple. Now, I do not know whether 
this was uh, a vision of the very person of Jesus Christ on his throne. But I would suspect so, knowing that the testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. Check that out in verse or chapter 19 of Revelation. Um, but it is not simply to see heaven, my friends. It is not to see the tens of thousands or millions of angels or to hear the heavenly choir. It is that we will be where he is and that God will show us even as inwardly as we walk in this earth and in these bodies of flesh, we, to the degree that we want it, can hear, understand, and in our mind's eye see the glory of the Lord, which Isaiah sees here. And likewise, Ezekiel, before he was called to his ministry in the very first chapters, what did God, how did God prepare Ezekiel for his work? And the answer is he gave him a vision of his glory and he saw the Lord and he saw the cherubim and he saw and heard uh the marvelous testimony of adoration for the Lord going on in heaven. And after that, God sent him to do his work. I say not one of us should expect to achieve that for which we have have been made, except we have a healthy and a uh, vivid appreciation for the brightness that emanates from the glory of Almighty God. And this went on. Remember after Matthew 16, when Peter had just expressed uh, his great confession, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Christ said, there are some of you who are standing here who will not see death until you have seen the Lord in his glory. And he took Peter and James and John, who were principals in leading the church. And what did he do? He took them up on a high mountain. And Elijah and Moses showed up. And the Lord was transformed. We call it the transfiguration. But the Lord was clothed in the glory 
that is his in eternity. And it was marvelous. It was so wonderful that Peter spoke up and said, let us just stay here. We have to go out in that world every day or live in this world with all the difficulties and what is going to, in the end, keep us uh, excited about what God has done and is doing in us and in his whole entire plan for the universe. And that was obviously for Peter, James, and John, that they should see him in his glory. And so God, I, I consider the, the deacon Stephen at the time of his, his martyrdom and just before he died, what did God give him? to pass through that veil. He looked into heaven and he saw the glory of Jesus Christ standing at the right hand of God. The glory of God and the person, the brightness of his being is, is the most precious gift we can be given. And Paul tells us about his trip to the third heaven where he saw things that he said were not legal even to talk about. I'm sure involved in that was the glory of God. And finally, when we go to the, the letter of Revelation, we find a picture of the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And what did he say? This is in Revelation chapter one. I'll just start with verse 10. I was in the spirit on the Lord's day and heard behind me a great voice as a trumpet saying, I am Alpha and Omega, the first and the last. And what thou seest, write in a book and send it to the seven churches with our, which are in Asia unto Ephesus, and unto Smyrna, and Pergamos, and Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and unto Laodicea. And I turned to see the voice that spake with me, and being turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. 
And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hair was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like undefined brass, as if they were burned in a furnace. And he said in uh, pardon me, and he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp sword, two-edged, and his countenance was as the sun that shines in its strength. And when I saw him, and this is similar to the reaction of Isaiah, and when I saw him, I fell down as I were dead. And he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last, and I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore and have the keys of hell and death. And so throughout the scriptures, we see in men that one and probably the most important an indispensable experiences that each believer who will be used of God and each believer who is going to please God, we find that somewhere along the line, God has revealed to them his glory. And it doesn't always have to be in a vision. It doesn't have to be um, by a, a miraculous appearing. But it has to be. And God is able to work this in our hearts. God has given us the written word, whereby, as, and if there's ever a reason that God would allow us to have an imagination, it would be that we could read the words of these prophets. And in our minds, I see what they saw. Yes. And indeed, if we have seen it, we will have the same response. Yes. Woe is me. And so what's the first thing that happens when we truly come to recognize who God is, 
let us let me remind you there's two things that stick out in regard to our relationship with God. Number one, we must see and appreciate his holiness, his grandeur, his might, his grace, his, his brightness of light, because there's always light. We must see that. We must carry that in our hearts. It will always be there. Secondly, we must understand, according to all of the writing of Isaiah, that the greater is the blessing of grace that God gives to people, a people, a man, whether it be Israel or whether it be the body of Christ, that judgment comes with a greater penalty to those who have been given the most revelation and the most uh, equipment whereby we might glorify God. And so if Israel was that nation in the earth whereby all the nations were meant to see as they were called the salt of the earth and the light of the world, that all the nations were, were to look at Israel and understand that God is great. And of course, in the end, judgment came to the nation after God had sent his son to them. And he said, that which I have prepared for you, I now am going to pass along to another nation. That is, that he was going to set Israel aside for a period of time, and he was going to build his church. Now, yes, that was God's plan. And so we look at ourselves as members of the churches as uh, not able to fail, not able to follow uh, the path of Israel whereby they dishonored ultimately in the most terrible way. They dishonored their God by killing his son. And we say, well, the church uh, is given so much more. We have the Holy Ghost. We have sonship. We are made not 
creatures of the earth, but heavenly beings. Israel was made for the earth, but we are made for heaven. It is not possible that we can also fail God. But that is what has happened and what is prophesied will happen whereby judgment will begin in our age at the house of God, and that is us. And the apostasy of the majority of those who call themselves by the name of Christ will become complete. And one of the, the truisms that we come to understand as we study God's dealing with his people is that God's judgment does not come until he has exhausted every remedy whereby he calls them back to himself. But finally comes the, basically the curse that we read about in verses nine through 12 of Isaiah chapter six. And my goodness, we read it again in Matthew chapter 13, where the Lord spoke these same words Matthew chapter 13, starting with verse 9, Christ said this, and we'll be studying this pretty soon on Thursday night, who hath ears to hear, let him hear. And the disciples came, said unto him, why speak unto them in parables? And he answered and said unto them, because it is given unto you, you disciples, to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. You see, Israel, when Christ came, Israel was just simply ripe for judgment. And there had been many chastisings and the dispersion of Israel into Assyria and then into Babylon. And the, the fact that from that point forward, Israel was under the heel of every empire from the time of Babylon now uh, in the New Testament beginnings, they were under the heel of the Roman Empire. And these were all chastisements, which they failed to profit from. But then he said, 
I basically going to remove you from even being a nation in the world. No one will know who Israel is. Now we are thankful that for his name's sake, God will yet restore that nation. And that's coming. And you saw the beginnings of it in 1947 and 1948. But he says here in Matthew 13, he answered and said unto them, because it is given unto you the know, to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it is not given. For whosoever has, to him shall be given. And he shall have more abundance. But whosoever has not from him shall be taken away even that which he has. Therefore, I speak to them in parables because they seen, see not. And hearing, they hear not. Neither to, do they understand and my goodness, he refers back to Isaiah then in verse 14, Christ speaking. And in them is fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah, which says, by hearing you shall hear and shall not understand, and seeing ye shall see and shall not perceive. For this people's heart is waxed gross, and their ears are dull of hearing, and their eyes they have closed, lest at any time they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears, and should understand with their heart, and should be converted, and I should heal them. And so that was the judgment of God so that even when the Messiah came, they would not receive him. These are the ways of God. And now, in Christendom, what needs to occur whereby we might add to the remnant of the true church of Jesus Christ that yet exists in this world. Let us in all of the churches turn away from the foolishness of tickling men's senses. Turn away from making the experience of worship something that uh, becomes a sensual experience, something that does not involve the truth, something that returns back to what Paul said, I don't have any other message for you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And let us turn to the scriptures and immerse the people week after week in the truth that God is holy. Mm -hmm. 
and that God deserves our obedience and our absolute allegiance and indeed our heartfelt love and that God is the only source of the need, the filling of the need of our souls. And if that does not occur, every local assembly that acts in contrary to this which I have spoken, they will continue headlong into their ignorance, their idolatry, adding to themselves and to their leaders judgment upon judgment upon judgment. This message has become almost lost in our churches. And so the burden of Isaiah and the burden of John in the book of Revelation and many of the prophets as they outline for us the ways of God and the result of the lack of knowledge of the person. And so Christ said, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. John Darby said, our judgment on the state of the church should have its rule, the manifestations or pardon me, the manifestation of Christ's glory as the head in heaven. He also said, the spirit of faith, the spirit of faith is preoccupied with the glory of God. The spirit of faith is preoccupied with the glory of God. And I read something from Vernon McGee a few days ago. Some of you have heard me comment upon what occurs in most so-called midweek prayer meetings at various churches. Many don't have them even anymore. But I was always distressed that there was never anything really of substance prayed for. We thought and were conditioned in those prayer meetings simply to pray for uh, old people who were sick 
and problems that were basically just simply things uh, in the world. But you'd never hear a prayer whereby God would bring uh, a vision of his glory to the church. And there was never a wailing over sin. There was never prayers towards those who were, who, who were caught up in temptation, bringing their lives to ruin. And so McGee said this. He said, at first as a young preacher, I thought I better build up. I better build up the midweek prayer meeting. Having said that, he said, but I came to a different conclusion. For I found that if I have a midweek prayer meeting with a hundred dead saints to bring another hundred dead saints in would change nothing. My friends, it is not our religious activities that are important. It is whether or not the life of God shines forth to bring his glory in the, in the person of Jesus Christ. Let us remember. Let's join our hearts together as we close in prayer. Father, forgive us whereby we have failed to even measure up to that first part of what we refer to as the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. You are great, Lord. You are glorious. You are to be desired. It is to you, Lord, we are attracted not to that which you give us, but to the very person of who you are. Your being is glorious and beautiful. And it is our joy, Lord God, to know you and love you forever. Make this for as far as we can bring the word. Make this, Lord God, to be the, the very expression of our life here on this planet. For this is our time. This is our opportunity. Glorify yourself, Lord God, until that time you take us out. For we know the time is near. May we be occupied and may we be preoccupied with the glory of God. These thanks we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all.